Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The secret in business is knowing something nobody else knows. Is a quote from Aristotle Anassis the Greek shipping magnate who built a fleet of super tankers and freighters larger than the navies of many countries. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today. An Australian entrepreneur who set out to be the world's largest aluminium shipbuilder. Our guest today is John Rothel, AO, founder and chairman of Austal Limited. Austal owns and operates industry-leading shipyards in Australia, the United States of America, the Philippines and Vietnam with a joint venture in China and a global support network. John was also previously chairman of the Australian Shipbuilders Association and the State Training Board of Western Australia. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners and followers from all over the world, please don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And for our listeners in Canada, Singapore, and the Netherlands, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In today's discussion, we delve into the beginnings and eventual success of one of Australia's eminent entrepreneurs. From two boats out of a backyard to creating Australia's first ASX-listed shipbuilding company. John gives us a view through the lens of an entrepreneur, thinking about barriers, expanding and opening new markets offshore and building a legacy for the company to become a global icon. John also shares his views on the stark contrast between business conditions in Australia and the United States, deal-making in China and imparts advice on the entrepreneur who sees the world's limitations. So sit back and enjoy Think Without Barriers. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we discuss Austal and the great Australian success story that it is, can you share with us a little bit about your background? Sure. I'm one of six children and we were a migrant family. Uh, I was born in the Netherlands, came out in 1954 at the age of 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was a very different Australia then. But uh, nevertheless, I went to school here for the last couple of primary school years and then a bit of high school. I think back in those days, it was more important for the children to enter the workforce. So I uh, went to work at the age of 15. And so I never had a lot of schooling. Um, okay. But nevertheless, uh, learned something on the way, I suppose. 
So early uh, early years of work, uh, initially, uh, you know, I lived pretty close to some some market gardens, so I did a bit there. And but uh, between there and say um, 22 or 23, I did a lot of um, boy type things. Uh, I, I I did land clearing down south, working for a contractor. I drove some trucks and I did all sorts of stuff. Uh, but uh, my my hobby were, was always boats. Where did that love come from? Yeah, I don't really know that. So most of my uh, growing up life uh, was down here, not far from where Austell is, yeah. uh, close to the ocean. So it was natural for, uh, for us to want to sail and go on the sea. And it just grew from there, Greg. So you're a handy sailor as a young bloke? Yeah, but not good at it. I have, most of it was not around boys. It was mainly out in Coburn Sound. So uh, the the racing that I did, I was not particularly competitive as a sailor. Now, at the age of 24, is it true that you commenced or you set up your first business? Yeah, I think uh, setting up a business or using that uh, that statement is probably a bit exaggerated. So I, uh, you know, uh, early marriage, uh, 24 years old. Okay. So I had, I lived on a fairly large property. Uh, there was a large uh, shed on that and, uh, and I started to do a steel fabrication work. So I did all sorts of stuff. I made balustrading and, um, my elder brother was in the, the scuba dive business. So I used to make lots of dive compressors and that sort of stuff. But it was a, a general one-man business. But nevertheless, I was into metal beating, I guess. Yeah, but where does the entrepreneurial spirit come from? You've got a choice as a young as a young bloke. You love the sea, as you say. But you could also pursue a normal career and work for somebody. You've chosen not to. Yeah, that's uh, an endless uh, question that I've asked myself. I frankly think it's inherent, Greg. Yeah. I just think that uh, we either want to do something. Uh, my uh, the early days of of that small engineering business that I had was probably more about uh, bringing enough income in to feed the family. I've, I now have four children, uh, and uh, would have had one or two at that time. Yeah. Uh, so I probably never spent a lot of time working for other people so I didn't quite know what that was like and the rest of it is inherent I've got brothers and sisters that uh, uh, that don't seem to have those same um, uh, needs to be entrepreneurial but they're also uh, in their respective fields uh, really good citizens so it's just something that's uh, inherent I think no big agenda in mind you didn't set out to take on the world or was it more to put food no, on the, uh, the table for I, the kids? I, yeah, I don't think I spent a lot of time thinking about where I wanted to be back in those early days. It was yeah. more about doing well for the family and so forth. One thing leads to another. So I think the the add-on part to this story is that um, back in the, in, in the early days of that engineering business, my brother and I both wanted a sailboat. Uh, he didn't have those uh, metal fabrication skills. So I built two of them also in the backyard. And at that time, we were both going to just sail them. Right. Uh, but uh, when they were completed, in my case, I was more interested in selling that boat before I ever sailed it. Right. Uh, and, uh, and to start Starboats, which you know something about. Yeah, well, tell us a bit more about Starboats. So Australia was uh, was already producing what we refer to as tinnies, which are you know small aluminium boats. Yep. Um, 
what it wasn't doing or anywhere in Australia was a, a solidly constructed plate boat, if you like, mm -hmm. um, fabricated from heavy plates. Uh, and Australia was in that position at that time where guys wanted to be, uh, had four-wheel drives and go out back and have a strong boat they could bash around and so forth. So mm -hmm. I found that uh, niche uh, there and it was uh, not being done in Australia. And I, I think one of the things that I've always considered is uh, breaking new ground or disrupting type industry is, is good value. So I started building star boats and I had this magic um, sort of uh, catch cry, which was a dozen aluminium boats, um, yeah. a dozen rust, rot, waterlog or warp, you know, <laughs> uh, as, as all the other boats were supposedly doing. That business grew quite well, and I opened a, another yard. I distributed around Australia. Um, okay. Lots of these uh, boats went to, in the, the early ones, went to abalone divers in South Australia. I then also started a, a yard in Brisbane or out of Brisbane, All right. uh, building, building boats for the Queensland coast and parks and wildlife and so forth. And I had a small yard in Geraldton, Western Australia, where where we were building uh, largely the cray boats uh, or rock lobster, as they're now called. Uh, so uh, three fabrication locations, and it all seemed to go pretty well. What was the sort of the scale of the business then? Where did it get to in its peak? So really, the main business in, in Perth was no more than about 30 employees. So it was a small business. Uh, Queensland was smaller than that. I would have thought eight or 10 uh, and, uh, and something similar in Geraldton. So it, it certainly wasn't big business, Greg. But why did you sell it? Well, when, you're, uh, when you start a small business, there are, only, there are a couple of choices you have, but yeah. uh, the one that's uh, undeniably there is you've got to work pretty hard to make it work. And I was, I was quite tired. Uh, oh, you know, it was one of these um, businesses where you do everything because you're you're you own the business, but you're the salesman. And if you needed to, you would would do some fabrication work if you like. Uh, perhaps a little less of that. Uh, but I was a bit tired and. Uh, in the first instance, there was an organization, a company called Queensland Merchant Holdings uh, that showed interest in it. Uh, and they were actually the buyers of the business, but they then transferred that to, to Quintex. Okay. But um, yeah, it was just probably the offer was reasonable. Uh, I was a bit tired and I was looking to do other things. I did, though, have a two and a half year service contract at the end of that. Um, I had to work for them for two and a half years to to complete, if you like, the, the transaction. And did you end up getting a break in between that and the next venture we're about to talk about? Yes, I did. So again, staying with boats, I finished my time with Quintex and wanting to build a little distance between uh, leaving them and starting a new business. Um, I operated a, a number of tourist-type boats. I had uh, a semi-submarine type, uh, you know, tourist-type boat at Rottnest. Oh, yeah. I had a couple of boats in Fremantle Harbour during the America's Cup period. Um, if you were in Fremantle at that time, you would have uh, you would have enjoyed it. But I I had two two boats doing the the tours around the the various syndicates. I had a boat at Showwater Bay, which is south of Rockingham, doing uh, eco trips, and I had one at at Coral Bay, which is uh, you know five or six hundred nautical mile north of here, uh, a, a semi sub boat doing uh, coral viewing. So 
I, I did all that as uh, just to unwind and to have something to do of interest. Um, mm-hmm. And it was probably a year later from leaving the Quintex group that I, I pulled some people together to talk about uh, the starting Austal. Why? Why Austal? And what did you ultimately want to set out to achieve? So during my time with Quintex, I had two roles. Um, I started off managing production in that combined group that bought several uh, smaller West Australian boat building businesses. Um, this so is under I, the time I, Mr. Christopher Scase was still there? Yeah, I, Christopher Scase was there, although I didn't have much to do with him at my level, and I've forgotten now who I was dealing with, but uh, I was uh, somewhere down the pecking order from Scase. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, the position I finished up within that two-and-a-half-year, I call it penance, that I had to serve for them, I uh, managed international marketing and sales. So I did a bit of traveling and became aware that there were opportunities at that time towards the end of my period there, my watch, um, the Scase Empire was starting to slide down a hill and it was fairly obvious that it was going to fail sooner or later. So I guess I saw the opportunity, I was aware there was there were opportunities in the world and I was also very much aware that uh, the Scase Empire was uh, on a downhill slide. So I guess I, uh, I thought, well, hey, there's an opportunity here for me. And what is the opportunity? Because surely... You're not the first boat builder to come along. No, I was aware that uh, China, uh, during my case period, Mm -hmm. I'd traveled to China a fair bit. And I saw there that the the Norwegians had delivered several vessels to China and the vessels being high-speed, smaller catamarans, 40-meter size range. And the... I guess I looked at them and thought, wow, we're more capable of doing that than what they appear to be. This is a market not far away. I had some vision of what I thought the future and how many could be needed in the market. Uh, so it was initially focused on China, and that's where we started in in 88, Greg. And those catamarans, John, are they ferries in that sense, or what are they actually used for? Yes, they were. So, so my first ferry to China... Um, that uh, sounds a bit like a slow boat to China. My first <laughs> ferry to China wasn't a slow boat. It was sold uh, to Nantong, but it's out of um, out of Shanghai, uh, up the up the Pearl River, and uh, oh. it uh, was a ferry running out to uh, to Nantong. Mm-hmm. My second vessel to China was also in that part of the world, but the real market was between Hong Kong, which was in under British rule, yep. uh, and mainland China. So out of, into the, um, I, I a while ago said the Pearl River uh, up at Shanghai, that's incorrect. The Pearl River is down the bottom, but yep. up the Pearl River, the Pearl River Delta, yep. uh, and there were lots and lots of those ferries operating there that were dilapidated and not up to scratch. And I felt that's where our market is. Interestingly, Greg, those vessels that were built uh, at least 30 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, quite a number of them are still running on those routes there now. Gee, well done. And look, John, I guess as every entrepreneur sets out on their quest, dream's good, but you've got to find the money to uh, support it. You had some challenges along the way to get that bank guarantee, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So, And I, I think I should stay up front you know, first up, operating or setting up a cost that can normally be managed. It really depends on on the way you handle it. So my partners and myself 
collectively only put up $200,000, Greg, mm -hmm. as working capital. So that was the, the paid up capital. Right. But once I signed the first contract, the Chinese government insisted in full bank guarantees for the full contract price of the ship on signing the contract. So we had to, the, the ship was sold for somewhere north of 4 million US dollars. Uh, I had to come up with a bond or if you like a bank guarantee of that amount. Now that uh, initially uh, I went in thinking, well, You've got to be a little optimistic, John. How are you going to do that? So at that time, I went to, I went to EFIC, which was then the the government uh, part of Austria, the Export Finance and Insurance uh, Group, and uh, their answer was no. I think you're biting off a bit more than you can chew. Uh, so there was a no answer there. I walked the house St George's Terrace where where the bankers live, and and tried a few of them. And um, I certainly went to my own bank first, uh, but I got a few no's. And finally, I walked into a bank, and I don't think it matters if I use that name, but no. it was Standard Chartered yep. at that time. And uh, and that was the first time they their manager, their state manager, and the uh, development manager came to see me the next day and uh, wanted to have a look around. So really, Greg, when you think about it, I wouldn't have been worth a million dollars at that time. And my my partners had very little. I barely had a house, some of them, because they're young guys. Right. Don't forget, it was 88, I was 44. The youngest of them was 23, and the oldest was 28. Right. Okay. <laughs> Seriously, young guys. So Standard Charter took a punt on me. What was the tipping point for that, for that banker to back you? I think... They realized that we had the skills, we had the determination. So I think they judged the people. Um, that's the only way. There was no uh, sort of strength in the financial backing that uh, would have caused them to make that decision. I think they wanted to be part of that business and, and they took a punt. But as I've said, whilst my house and assets uh, were on the line, they were only worth uh, somewhere south of a million dollars. So at, uh, it was just a, a phenomenal break for us, but one that we, uh, we, we definitely needed. And I could just go on a bit, yeah. uh, Greg, and this will make you smile. I, I was in London. My office rang me. I was in London at a ferry exhibition, I think, or, a, or a, that type of show. And my office rang and said, John, uh, can you go back via Hong Kong? Because we've heard that there may be another opportunity to sell another one of these ferries. And uh, I did that. And I signed another contract for a second ferry in Hong Kong, also worth close to 5 million US. And I thought, <laughs> you've got to be, and of course, it had to be subject to a bank guarantee. And I didn't let the customer know how I was sweating that, but I thought you've <laughs> got to be the greatest bloody optimist, you know, the, to to think you could do that. So I went back. I went to the state government. I wasn't going to go back to Standard Chartered at that point. I went to the state governor and said, "Help me with this." And they were in election mode. And they said no. I went back to Ethic, and there was a there was a louder no. And I finally ended back at Standard Chartered. And they said, "Well." You know, we're in for one, we might as well be in for two. So they came good again. And uh, and frankly, in that first run of ferries to China, uh, there was something like about uh, 27, I think, 27 ships, all at that sort of value, all backed and supported by Standard Chartered. And uh, we've wow. never called on a bond, I can tell you. Gee, that's a terrific story. Can I ask you something, which is which is also incredibly fascinating? 
Had you built anything anywhere near this scale previously? No, no, nothing at all. Okay. So you're presenting to the Chinese authorities or whoever the the persons are buying your ferries, pretty much a dream to back me, aren't you? Because you haven't got, you haven't physically built the boat, are you? You're, 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 You're selling the dream and then you're going to go and raise the finance. Yeah, and and I think I'm fortunate that they somehow accepted my spiel, uh, Greg. So they must have had confidence that we could deliver. Uh, and don't forget, they had full bonds. They had full bank guarantees. So if it was to go sour, they could have pulled those bonds. Yeah, right. So that, that was backing for them. But, uh, yeah, I think from the perspective of my history had been I'd had – plenty of aluminium experience in yep. the past, aluminium boat building experience. And uh, and somehow I must have been able to convince them that uh, they should trust me and, and run with it. So what's the art of negotiation then? The art of negotiation in China is a, is a, is a really interesting subject. And I'll tell you another story and I won't drag this on for too long, but I was in Nantong um, up the, um, the Yellow River, isn't it? Up yep. there. Yep. Um, and um, the the Chinese are good at negotiating and they love it. So I was a sort of a, a well-meaning, bright-eyed Aussie young fellow with little experience. So we started on the negotiation for the first ship. And um, this went on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had told me that the previous vessel they'd bought from from Norway, the negotiation lasted 59 days. So yeah. I thought, hell, you know, I'm in for something. So it, it, was, it was quite a, an interesting uh, subject, and it was a great learning trick for me. The, they started off, of course, talking about – the first thing they talked about was the price. Yep. And so you have a specification, and, and once you'd, you'd, you'd bled what you thought you could afford to bleed, they then started on the specification, almost as though there wasn't one written, you know. And that went on for days. And uh, and then when you you got to the end of that, they'd start on the uh, contractual conditions, uh, and then so you get to the point where you know how much you've got in the vessel, you know how little you've got left. Um, so I can assure you that I didn't ever follow that uh, modus operandi again. I I always left the price to last and did uh, did the other bits uh, bits up front. But um, uh, I uh, they were very proud that it had been achieved within nine days and all i had was wow. uh, myself and uh, and and an interpreter and there was a room full of them you, you know it was, it was a game for them but uh, but they were a great lesson for me i guess and did you deliver on time and on budget john very much so yes there was a problem after signing that contract the uh, tiananmen square event happened uh, and there was uh, Australian support for that first ship uh, it wasn't epic, but there was some sort of soft loan arrangement. I've forgotten the detail, mm-hmm. but the Australian government pulled out because of the Tiananmen Square human rights issue and yeah. so forth. So the contract was halted after all that, but that only lasted a short time when uh, when the relationships uh, were re uh, uh, corrected and we could continue on with with uh, with the contract. And as you as the key figure here, where, where were you spending your time going forth then in the development of the company? Are you spending your time on business development? Are you spending your time on hiring new people? Where do you, how do you, you know, you just seize the deal. You're then going to execute the deal, which means to build the boats. How do you keep moving forward? So 
I had the the young fellows that were my partners at that time. Young fellows, they were they were really good. Uh, Greg, uh, very capable, could stand on their own feet. So mine was all business development. Yeah. Business development meant traveling into the markets and talking to the people. So whilst I was always, if you like, the head of the company. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it was well run because it was a manufacturing plant by my partners. So we were we were a great team. And you started to develop and broaden your uh, your customer base, from what I can understand, and uh, moved into the likes of what Europe and United States. Yeah. So obviously, when you when you think about where I was at that time, I was producing sausages, if you like, ferries that uh, you, you <laughs> know they were one after the other. Um, <laughs> And I was concerned about um, being geographically uh, dependent on China and, and product-wise being dependent on 40-meter ferries. Yeah, right. We had to do other stuff to be, be more robust, if you like, in, in case of market changes. So my first interest was in, in doing military-type vessels, mm-hmm. and our first contract in military vessels was with the then called Department of Customs, today called Border Force, and I built uh, eight uh, patrol boats for them. So not quite military, but paramilitary, if you like. Yeah. Um, and um, that was our first diversification of, of products, uh, so to speak. Uh, and frankly, INCAT in Tasmania were ahead of us in building the large uh, vehicle ferries. Right. They'd found a, a, a buyer in the UK who came out and and ordered one or two vessels. Again, uh, perhaps somewhat arrogantly, but I, I believed we could do it better than what INCAT could. And we started towards these large vehicle ferries. And a large vehicle ferry of Austal is, uh, carries, say, uh, 200 cars at that time and, uh, and maybe 1,000 passengers at a speed of around 40 knots. So they're typically for, for routes that are often less than 50 nautical mile. Uh, but to get vehicles and people across the other side of the creek quickly. So um, the first were the patrol boats. Second was the large ferries. Third was true Navy uh, patrol boats for the Australian Navy. So we we then had reasonable diversification. And I'll just keep rabbiting on, Greg. The, the add-on from that was that the U.S. had a policy whereby, and still have, it's it's called the Jones Act, if you like. It's an act where non-U.S. built commercial vessels can't operate within the United States. It has to be U.S. built. Yep. So I knew we could never sell to the U.S. So I started to mm-hmm. think about the U.S. as a base for manufacturing. I then got a call from a U.S. Navy inviting me to attend a a workshop in Washington, D.C., where they had a three-day workshop on trying to identify opportunities that there may be for high-speed ships within U.S. defense. Right. And they were initially focused on uh, high-speed freighters. So I attended that workshop, um, and I and the workshop, it, you know, it was uh, there were very broad parameters. So they started off with, well, we'd like to go across the Atlantic or the Pacific at uh, at no less than 40 knots, between 40 and 100 knots, and have like 10,000 tonnes of cargo. And that was probably a dream of the public service at that time, but uh, that wasn't going to be able to be achieved. But I did come away thinking that sooner or later they would use fast in-theatre type 
vessels in theater, meaning within a war exercise zone to carry goods and people and so forth into the zone. So I became quite definite that there was a market, albeit I started off looking for commercial opportunities in the US. I felt that there was likely to be a US defense market there in due time. So when did you sign your first deal? That was probably in 99, I think. And I should say the first two ferries I built in the US was with um, Hawaii. So, mm-hmm. And they were inter-island ferries. Uh, so we built two big car ferries for that service. It did two things. It also demonstrated to US defense that we had capability and capacity to do that in the US. I, I bought a, a plot of land. I'd taken on board, Greg, a US partner yeah, right. with a 30% equity position. I thought, if we're going to deal with US defense, we ought to be just a little bit American. Uh, and I took on uh, an equity partner. So we were in Mobile, Alabama, where we still are yep. at that time. I bought a small piece of land, about uh, 10 acres or something, I seem to recall, and we built these two ferries for Hawaii. Now, to bid on U.S. defense ships, we had to be security cleared in the U.S., and we weren't. So the only way we could bid for the first littoral combat ships, which the U.S. sought um, expressions of interest for, the only way we could bid for those was to do that as a subcontractor to a U.S. company. Now, we own the property in the U.S., we, we own the business, we own everything, but we, our bid was through General Dynamics. Right. Uh, General Dynamics had approached us and said, these LCSs are going to come up. We don't know how to do that. You do. You need us, etc." cetera. Um, so we built the first two of those ships as subcontractors to uh, General Dynamics. Then uh, U.S. Navy, I think, saw that the, there was a little reason for General Dynamics to be in that mix, if you like, mm-hmm. because we were actually doing it, although they were putting the arms and the systems on. But uh, we achieved our own security clearance in the United States. So uh, then the the modus operandi changed where General Dynamics became a subcontractor to us to, to install the arms and the systems. And since then, for goodness sake, those that have been delivered and on order at the moment, there have been like uh, 19 ships, or something like that, Greg. So the two of them were subcontract. The next 17 are all Austal uh, USA. During that process, we bought out our 30% partner right. in the US. Okay. Uh, they, they wanted to move on and do other stuff, and it was a great opportunity. So we've owned... 100% of that business for a long time now. It may sound like a silly question, but for the listeners out there, does Austal build the whole boat? Do you, or you just do the chassis? Like, where, where does it begin and end? Yeah, so on a commercial vessel, we do the whole boat. If you like, we install the seats and the carpets in the end and hand the vessel over. With a military ship, we do the whole platform and its propulsion systems, but we don't do the combat systems. So the combat equipment or the systems driving that combat system is done, in this case, by uh, General Dynamics. When did you walk into the office one day and say, um, I think we're going to make it? I, I, it's not a, an arrogant statement, Greg, but I don't think not making it was ever an option in my mind. Yeah, right. uh, I probably always thought 
there is a way to do this, and, uh, and we just went forth. You decided to list the business? Yes. Um, prior to that, uh, you know, when you have some success in the startup business, you get uh, you get a range of uh, mezzanine type investors, venture capitalist type people knock on your door. Yep. And uh, I'd had a few of those, but I wanted to get into, so now we're stepping back a little bit, but I wanted to get into these large ferries. And whilst we had operated by the seat of our pants and we had almost no debt, to get into uh, ships that were worth 40 or $50 million a shot was another dimension for me. So in the meantime, I'd connected, and I again, I'll use his name because I don't think he'll be in mind. I'd connected with a fellow called Bill Ferris, who used to be the uh, chair of Austrade, the Australian Trade Commission. I'd met him in China on one of my ferries when he was going in with his then minister, but he also had a, uh, a mezzanine uh, a capital business, if yep. you like. Yep. So Bill came to me. He and I hit it off. He was a, he had smarts that I didn't have, and he had confidence in me. So uh, he bought thirty percent of the business, uh, Greg. So uh, and that was in the early years. But I seem to recall he bought thirty percent of the business for about fifteen million dollars. So it immediately valued the business at about fifty, if you like. So that was our first upgrade from the two hundred grand cash startup capital. But Bill was great. Um, he was a mezzanine investor, but he added value to my board and skills that I needed, uh, particularly in readiness for a listed company. He um, enforced, if you like, a, a level of professionalism in, in board matters. So so we got and, and Bill's still one of my greatest friends, quite frankly, and one of my closest friends. So he brings that dynamic, which, you know, like you, as you say, you can't sometimes put a number on. But were you always going to go ahead and list? We always was it all about I mean, we need the capital to go to fulfill the dream? Yeah, good for that. I didn't actually uh, answer your previous question, <laughs> but I'm um, like that. But look, um, being a mezzanine investor, um, he uh, he clearly they have an exit plan. Right? That's right. They, they want to be yep. on the train for so yep. long, yep. and they want to then be able to get off yep. and um, and go and do other stuff. So that was always the case. So when Bill was keen to start thinking about other opportunities for himself. Um, I had to, again, reevaluate which way. We had enough cash internally for me to have bought his shares back, uh, but that would have left me cashless again. So I then started to think about what was the best way forward to either bring in another partner with cash or whatever, and uh, I took some good advice in this town and decided that that a listing was probably the uh, the most sensible option. It was also, Greg, it would prepare us for my partners to eventually peel off and cash in and move on and do other stuff. So I've never been disappointed that we listed. Somewhat of a frustration at the moment, perhaps <laughs> from time to time. We'll get to that later. But, mm. uh, but no, it, it's been a good ride. So what's the scale of Austal today, John? First up, by way of revenue, I seem to think last year was about 1.8 bill. So we have, um, if that's one scale, uh, our profit last year is obviously no secret. After tax, it was around about 60 mil or something like in that region. And um, people-wise, in the US, we'd have around about 4,000. Here, we would have we would be just a bit south of 1,000. The Philippines would be um, around a thousand, 
and we have a new yard in Vietnam. It's a property we don't own, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's a leased property, but a very capable team there. Uh, and they would have a few hundred there, Greg. And can you sort of paint a picture for the audience about, I guess, the recent designs of the ships, John? Is it is it state-of-the-art? You know, how to, why would I buy Austal compared to, I guess, others like when I'm if I'm going to drop 50 million or whatever it is to buy a decent boat? Well, other than for your ability to be able to uh, deal with the charming chairman, Greg, <laughs> there, there, are, there are probably other reasons. So first up, we've been very good at our research and development uh, side of our business, and that's driven us right from day one. So if I go back to my early star boat days, I mm-hmm. became very much aware that unless you stayed ahead of the pack, there were always people that had left us and start up competing business and so forth. So you had to keep developing or growing your product range or doing something different. And we've been good at that at Austal. Uh, so one of the interesting ones that I'll just talk to you about is one of my uh, naval architects here who was heading the the uh, R&D team said one day, look, the trimarans will work better than catamarans. They'll have a, a better motion in the sea than catamarans. So three-hole configuration will work better. So he uh, asked for a little bit of money and I seem to think a couple hundred thousand dollars to do some work. And, um, and, and he built a small prototype. And we fiddled around with that. But that led to us building a 127-meter trimaran for a commercial operator in the Canary Islands. Um, And that boat works really well. The trimarans, they're just a a different motion at sea, far gentler on passengers from the perspective of lower seasickness. The interesting part of that was that that trimaran uh, became of interest to the United States. So the US sent a small delegation to the Canary Islands. Uh, I wasn't part of that. They did that directly between the the ship operator and the U.S. defense to evaluate that trimaran. Now, that is the same body as such um, that all our LCS ships are. So I guess that's an example of a first up R&D leading to to a commercial ferry. And since then, we've built some more of these trimarans for commercial operators. They're a little bit more expensive, but they're very good. But of course, uh, it's led to 19 ships for US Navy, Greg. You big believe in R&D then, John? Absolutely. That's right. And we still run that very strongly today. And we've got a small team, um, but a very capable um, current generation, young, bright guys. I say guys and girls probably, but but uh, no, we've got a, a always have a, had a focus on R&D. I'm going to challenge you on something, John. Yes. In an article in the AFR very recently regarding delays over the $45 billion frigate program, it stated, estimates was also told there would be delays to the six Cape class vessels being built by listed shipbuilder Austal in Western Australia after Chinese-made aluminium failed to meet standards for the first two ships. John, why are we using Chinese aluminium? Well, so first up, we have a supplier in Australia. I, I think I'll leave that name alone right now because it might be a bit awkward for them. We have a supplier in Australia where we buy all our aluminium. We are dependent on the project. We ask for it to be certified to a particular classification society, an overseer of quality, if you like. So 
we just say to the supplier, get us so many tons of this material with that certification. Um, as it turned out, that failed, Greg. So oh, we, we had started to build the ships, uh, and for whatever reason, one of our people identified that uh, they did some testing on some of that material well after we'd started to build it. That material didn't end up meeting the specification. We then went back to the supplier and they said, well, we've got a certificate. Bottom line is the certificate should not have been issued by the certifier and it came to light. Now, it is unfortunate that set the project back, but it was totally out of our control as such. The supplier gets their aluminium from around the world. In this case, it was uh, from China. Now, I think with that, uh, it's also identified that the supplier has supplied other material for other even defence projects. That's also now coming into question and so forth. Oh, but really? Not, not much we could do about it. Could John, talk us through Volta, the investment into the Volta system. That sounds pretty fascinating. Yeah, we've got, uh, and that's uh, driven by our R&D people, um, We've, we've got, as I've said, a forward-thinking group of people. So if we think about where the world's going with low emissions and the need for low emissions, it is inevitable that sooner or later that will happen with ships. So our R&D team started to work on a zero-emission electric, uh, uh, electric vessel. So it, right? it's simply a battery-powered ship. In the small range, Greg, the, these are 40-metre boats, um, or that size range. We had one opportunity uh, in Europe uh, for those, so we developed the vessel fairly well along, except that somehow that didn't, uh, not because of our ship, but it didn't get past of the capital expenditure or something. But uh, fundamentally, they'll be plugged in overnight when they reach the end of their service day, and there'll be zero emissions. So if we all think well enough ahead, there's going to be a time when there's a far greater demand for that. So we had to be in that game. So where, where's the future going to be for the business, John? Is it going to be both the ferries and, and Defence Force? or? Yes, uh, that's, um, that's an interesting one that uh, I focus a lot on. So I, I've come for a fair ride so far, and I'm not interested in looking towards an end to that ride that I'm on. Yep. So I first up, I, I had to, if you like, um, change the culture or at least to add to the culture of we want to be much bigger than what we are. We want to be a true world giant one day. Mm-hmm. So then the next question is, and that will be beyond my shift, uh, Greg, but I'd like this Australian company to become a, a global icon one day. And we've done pretty well to date, but there's a lot more we can do. So then what should the company look like in the future? Uh, certainly, right now, um, car ferries are going to be slow for a little while post-pandemic. Uh, traffic's less and people are needing to get back on their feet. But uh, high-speed ferries will always work, be they eventually electrically propelled or uh, with diesels as they are at the moment, or alternate fuels, um, you know, hydrogen perhaps. So ferries will come back and there, there may be a drought for four or five years. I'm not quite sure. I wouldn't like to guess that. Uh, the smaller uh, passenger ferries are suffering somewhat, but they'll come back quicker. So uh, I, I have no doubt that that will, uh, will come back quite soon. So in Australia, we're very much focused on defence-related business. So right now, we're part of the way through a batch of uh, 21 steel patrol boats for the 
for the Australian government, which mm-hmm. are, if you like, gifts to our Pacific uh, friends and neighbours. Okay. Uh, and uh, so we're we're part of the way through that. These are around, uh, I don't know, there are 40-odd metre boats uh, in that range. We're also building, uh, and well on the way, we're building two much bigger ones for Trinidad Tobago for their Coast Guard. Oh, okay. um, and they're, uh, they're in the water at the moment. And the first one's done some of its trials and second one's about to start them. Where the the six that you talked about a while ago for the Australian Navy, yes. uh, they're early days. So there's there's two or three years to run on those um, to, to for us to get those out. Now, the mix also needs to include uh, servicing of ships, right. Greg, both yep. both commercial and uh, naval ships. So we recently bought a business in Cairns. Uh, that's the patrol boat region yep. where they largely operate, uh, substantially operate around the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also close to where these Guardian-class Pacific Island boats will be serviced. Uh, so we bought a base there and we're growing that business. So in the United States, we also need to diversify. The U.S. Navy don't have a huge uh, order book, potential order book for more aluminium vessels. The in so much as the warships have come to an end, right. the fast freighters, uh, the EPFs as we call them, there's still a number of those uh, that will come out as time goes on. Yeah. But they also wanted us to have steel ability, and we have a great relationship with U.S. Navy. The people that run our business up there do very well and have a great rapport with them and there's great respect. So the U.S. government through Navy gave us uh, 50 million U.S. dollars in the past six months uh, on the basis that we contribute an equal amount and convert part of our shipyard to be able to do steel ships. And there are a number of programs in the pipeline at the moment, which is probably why U.S. Navy wanted us to have that capacity. So half our shipyard, approximately half, will be aluminium ships, and the other half will focus on steel ships. In the U.S., we're also very serious about setting up a service business and and dry dock, advanced but not finalized, on the West Coast, um, San Diego way, uh, so that we can service not only our own ships, but also other U.S. naval ships uh, with their own dry dock. So we're growing our U.S. service business. We're just uh, converting our shipyard, which is well advanced, to 50% steel capacity. We're wanting to grow our service business much more in Australia than where we are. And we're going to try and get as big a chunk as we can of future Australian defence work as there is available. So Austal made its reputation, what, on aluminium? It did make its reputation in aluminium, and that is a big part of our success because that was the differentiator. The world was building steel, and today I would never want to be in the business of building steel ferries, if you like, because there are plenty of countries that can do that. Steel defence ships, though, that is a different dimension to shipbuilding. There's a greater need for security, for one thing, and there's a greater need for more sophisticated equipment. So uh, I think... We can grow steel defense. I don't think we'll grow steel commercial, but our differentiator was aluminium high-speed ferries. Is there much difference, John, between how the U.S. defense procure ships versus how Australian defense capability acquisition and sustainment group procure defense? Is it easier or 
more complex between one or the other? Yeah, it's very different. Uh, clearly, the, the US uh, defense is a much larger business. So there are uh, layers of very good people, uh, frankly, in the US that uh, do the procurement. Well, we've now built a lot of ships for them. We've never had an issue with them. There's always been a level of, uh, of just behavior with US Navy. So, uh, you know, they're well capable of not leaving you with huge profits, uh, but they always leave something on the table <laughs> one way or another. So, so they're a great organization. Yeah. Australian, uh, Australian defense, um, uh, we, uh, we built a bunch of Armadale class patrol boats for the Australian Navy. And frankly, whilst they started off well, uh, they weren't maintained by us. They were maintained by a contractor. And, uh, and we erred to a certain extent where we probably didn't teach Navy enough about the difference between maintaining an aluminium vessel to a steel ship. So there were some issues and there was some dislike for aluminium in, in Australian defence. Oh, okay. um, though one, one example, Greg, and, and I don't put all the blame on defence, but, you know, we've built, Austral's built something like around about, um, in Australasia, around 300 ships. Right, right? Okay. And around about um, uh, 14 of these were these naval patrol boats. Now, all these commercial ship operators, they do more hours in operating their ship than what an average naval ship does, but they keep coming back for more and they don't have any issues with them. But our people did uh, with their aluminium, and I, and I think it's largely that it wasn't understood. So if you think about it, even if you add uh, the, uh, the Coast Guard, our uh, Border Force vessels to it, there might be 20 or 25 ships. The Border Force ones are going well. Two of navies, the later ones, they are now saying they're very reliable and some of their most reliable ships. But I think everyone's learnt on the way. But I've got two hundred and eighty thousand happy customers, wow. and and keep buying more. And defence have said, look, we've got some issues with these ships, etc. So we're okay. We're all getting on. We've got a new regime of defence people. I think there's greater understanding of what aluminium is all about. It was a great example of their confidence for us that they ordered these next six. But uh, so I think they're coming around. There's a different regime of people, uh, new operators all around, new government even. So uh, I think our future, uh, our relationship with defence is good. Okay. People we're dealing with now is, are, are very good. And uh, so I, I'm looking forward to the future. What about shipbuilding in general for Australia, John? How, how are we placed? Yeah, we don't really have a lot here. So mm. there have always been a, a, a small ship built here and there on a one-off type basis. But by way of a, um, a proper shipyard doing lots of ships, there are not too many. So INCAT in Tasmania mm -hmm. uh, continue to build large vehicle ferries, and they do okay. They're, they're not size, but they do okay. They're a good, good smaller type company. Uh, and they're not small, but what I meant was they're a, they're a good operator. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, besides us, there's really the defence shipbuilders being government-owned, uh, which was the Australian Submarine Corporation that built yep. the Collins class. The Australian Submarine Corporation built the uh, new air warfare destroyers with assistance from the designers. And uh, what else? They're, they're now going to be they're on the same facility BAE of just starting on their uh, on their frigate program yes. and uh, and Naval from 
uh, France uh, preparing themselves to build submarines here. But beyond that, there isn't much happening in Australia. Okay. And if I was to jump on one of your ferries in five years' time, I don't know, some holiday or we're moving a car or something, what's the experience going to be like, John? What's, what's going to change in terms of technology as I walk through the gate? Well, it'll be an amazing experience for you if you haven't already had one, Greg. So, <laughs> and I'm being a bit frivolous with my answer. But, but look, first up, um, do I think the car ferries will be substantially different in five years' time? I don't. Um, okay. I think the modifying those to be zero emission is too big a change. Yeah, I think right. that will gradually happen. Okay. Uh, I think we need to look at where hydrogen starting to go and consider alternative fuels. With the smaller type ferries, if you're going across the creek in Sydney or something, yeah. I think there's a fair chance that if they are not in place in five years' time, that the authorities will be looking at those as options and starting to plan for zero emissions. The the community will force them to do that, Greg, and you know that the focus there is on, uh, on zero emissions at the moment. Yeah. So we think most likely that is what will happen. Okay. As an entrepreneur, what's conditions like in Australia to get ahead? Well, I think they're very good. I've not really come across any any barriers um, for those that need capital uh, up front. There are a number of mezzanine type uh, uh, investors that would partake of that. In our case, as I've said, we didn't really have a huge need for startup capital. But, but no, I think the Australian community champions their entrepreneurs and their and and uh, it's changed somewhat, Greg. So if you think back in Western Australia's history. You know, we had entrepreneurs like Bond and uh, Connell and so forth. They weren't really, uh, they didn't cover themselves in glory for some of their behavior. But there are lots of good stories in Australia of good businesses that have been started up by founders, entrepreneurial type people. Uh, so, no, I think the, the mood is pro-entrepreneurialism in Australia. What's the worst bit of advice you received as a uh, entrepreneur and, th- and sit back and say, thank God I didn't follow it? I don't think I can recall any advice really? that I took on board that was bad. So I think that, that there's a qualifier. Okay. So um, entrepreneurs will, well, everyone in business, particularly startup, will get lots of advice from lots of people. And I think entrepreneurs will listen to it all and determine which they ought to take on board and which they can ignore. But Bad advice is unlikely to be taken on board because entrepreneurs are quite driven themselves and quite uh, focused on where they think they're going. So uh, smart people will listen to lots and take on board what they want to. But it is, I don't recall anything that uh, was bad advice that I took on board. Okay, but just just back in your comment just then, I think you said you're incredibly focused. How do you operate, John? You know, is it a three-year plan, five-year plan? You know, you're building, you're building large capital scale operations. How does the entrepreneur in you get everybody on board and execute the plan and keep everybody focused? How do you operate? So first up, if I tackle the people thing, okay. uh, the people thing is, is really leadership. So yep. if uh, providing you've got, you know, I'm a – uh, again, I don't want to sound like I'm blowing my own bugle, but I put a hell of a lot of uh, of value on honesty and transparency from everyone. Uh, and ethics are, are a big part of our makeup. Secondly, if you're leading properly, 
And then you're demonstrating both those uh, values, if you like, and also the other values of don't think with barriers, you know, jump over them, get around them, do whatever you want, just go for it and give people enough room to be able to do that. Then you're going to grow a team that will support you. Uh, I've got a an honor board down here that uh, that has, uh, I, we've only been in business for 31, 32 years. On my honor board, there are now, Oh, I, I can't remember how many, but there are a lot of names of people that have been here 25 years or more. So I guess it's saying something. There are a lot more in the 20-year, and so it goes down. But So we've been able to build up a loyalty and, and let them participate in the pride of what we do. Uh, what we do is 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 quite sexy, Greg. So we, we don't make dumb widgets. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, we're, we we build fancy ship for right. people to fight wars with or or move uh, move stuff around. So people get a sense of pride. They they get a sense of pride of talking to their families at home and uh, and what we've achieved. So so that's the people thing. Your the other part of your question was what motivates me? Yeah, uh, I I enjoy this ride, so I don't have a limitation. Sooner or later, uh, the brain will well, it's already probably starting to move slower. But I cover myself by employing lots of smart people around me to make me look good, Greg. But <laughs> but but there are uh, there, there's no end in sight for me. I'm okay. 77. And with a bit of luck, I might have really good health for another five years or, or more. Uh, but if that wasn't to be the case, and so be it. I've got a team that, that can keep uh, running this show well. But it, you get to a point, I used to jokingly say, when I get to a point to be able to buy a good bottle of wine and to buy new shoes when I need them rather than resold them, I'm going to be happy. And that's where I'm at, you know, and that's probably a bit frivolous. But yeah. it's not money that drives you. Um, yeah. It is we're building something. We're building something that's exciting. We're doing something for the first time, never been done in Australia. To think about what we've done, we are the only foreign Worship builder in the United States. Incredible, isn't it? So that that gives you. I'm I'm bragging a little. That yeah, you've got the right bragging, to be. But it, but it's a it's a personal satisfaction. I get to Mobile, Alabama, and look out my hotel window and and see our business spread out in front of me, and four or five or six warships tied up that are in different stages of completion. So that gives me a buzz. But it, the buzz ought to go on in Australia. We do have an element or a number of entrepreneurial startup businesses, they get to a point where they can cash in, you know, float it or list it and they, and it disappears overseas or it gets sucked up into conglomerate. Um, That wouldn't, uh, for me to think about that happening in my lifetime or beyond is daunting. I would like us to be able to be that, that uh, prominent uh, Australian success story, manufacturing success story. And I'll keep rowing the boat while my brain allows it and my fellow directors don't think I'm too stupid to do it, Greg. No barriers. What do you say? Get around over the top, get underneath, get around. How do you build that? I think that's probably inherent. Uh, again, I, if you allow barriers to stop you, then you're probably never going to get as far as you need to go. So, again, did I think when we started that we'd be building – the high-speed warships for U.S. Navy, probably not. But I didn't actually think of a dimension, an end dimension. I thought certainly on the day we started, when we only started on 40-meter-sized ferries, 
our business plan, which we built in about the first year we were in operation, just with my guys sitting around together saying, where are we going to take this thing? You know, we were talking about 100-meter ferries uh, yeah, back right. then. So, so when the U.S. opportunity came up, uh, it would be easy to think, oh, well, the U.S. laws give it to their own or this will happen, that will happen. But I just ignored that and I thought, no, we can do this. And, and we did. Um, so a bit of luck uh, helps. Um, but uh, certainly uh, I've never allowed anything to be too daunting for us, Greg. Have you had many setbacks? And, yeah, and, and, uh, when uh, you, and if you did, how did you handle them? <laughs> I had one bad one, um, and, uh, and that's much more recent. That's in the past two or three years where we, we didn't win a patrol boat contract, offshore patrol boat contract for the Australian government that we should have won. Right, okay. uh, and the, the detail of how we lost that is too complicated to talk about, uh, but um, we were price competitive, but I, I think a fair bit related to our relationship with the then people we had in Austal wasn't as good as what it should have been. So, uh, and I haven't got over that. The only, in so much as I'm still uh, really surprised at it because it, it didn't go to an Australian company, although they're being built in Australia, but it didn't go to an Australian company. We're a, a bigger company. We're more experienced. We're more global experienced. And to think that we couldn't have won these OPVs, is, uh, it, it still uh, shatters me to a certain extent. But we moved on. When you sit there at night and you, when you were running the show as the CEO, and you know this decision is going to be a game changer. I've got everything on the line, or whatever it's going to be. Do you bounce it around with anybody, or was it, do you just sit back and make the call yourself? What's what's been your approach? So I get I get things right. I get my ducks in a row in my own head to start off with, uh, and I then run it past our team. And by nature, I'm um, I'm a quick decider, which is there's a danger in that. So you also need people to slow you down a little bit. Uh, you know, let's think about this, that, and the other. Not to block you, but to make sure that all the decisions are challenged. So most definitely, I include. I've got a a very good senior team here. We've got a a, a very good CEO. Uh, we've got a um, a very good CFO, a good lawyer, a good HR person, and and the layer goes on. People that I can really count on. So the senior people around a table when we're really trying to make a decision about the way forward. Or of course we've got another uh, another um, uh, if you like process to go through. We make a decision as management, and I consider myself part of management of whatever's a good idea. We then run it past the board. You get a you get another lot of views on it, and and questions asked and so forth. So no, I'm not a I'm not an autocrat, although sometimes I've been blamed for that or accused of that. I should have said, but uh, no, I'm I'm inclusive. But are entrepreneurs and founders easy to work with, John? Well, you're asking the wrong man. Uh, what do you I, I think we're a piece of cake. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I think um, – Do I give you room to, do I give you room and space? How do, I, how do I operate with you when you're in full throttle? Uh, most definitely uh, you'll have room and space. Providing the values are applied – if there's a breakdown in the values, and those values are not only the ethical ones and so forth, but also be light on your feet, be open-minded, 
you know, go for the opportunities. Providing all those values are in place, I get out of the road. I'm here every day. I enjoy it. Uh, And I have great interaction with our our team, our senior team. They make the decisions. I don't. By the same token, before making any substantial decisions, they'll run it past me and very seldom would I have a different view. But um, no, I, I think I'm reasonably easy to to uh, live with, but you'd have to ask others. <laughs> now, you made the move from the exec into the boardroom. In this day and age, there's a lot of compliance and governance and lots to read, John. How are you finding all that? Oh, well, um, the ability to be able to delegate, Greg, is, is wonderful. So that gets delegated down the line because people like myself are not good at that. Um, you know, our uh, legal um, man here said, John, one of the proxy advisors have asked us to do a report on uh, what we're doing to uh, lower carbon emissions or, or words to that effect. Mm-hmm. And they've sent me a questionnaire, they're 195 pages. That's double the size of our board report. Yeah. So this, this rubbish creeps in. Uh, fortunately, we, we have to do some of it. We need to push back on some of it because it, it can be ridiculous. Uh, but but I've got a team here that do that far better than I would. I would probably be a little temperamental about that sort of question, and uh, and and I wouldn't be all that compliant. Do you reckon boards accept low growth too often in this country? If boards accept low growth, then uh, their leadership is wrong. Um, so first up, you've you've got to hope that you've selected, and you won't always get it right. You hope that you've selected board uh, people that are progressive and and entrepreneurial with within the within uh, uh, some guidelines. Um, but if a board is uh, accepting low growth, someone hasn't. Uh, change the rules for them, or they've been incorrectly selected. So the chair's not doing their job, or the founder chair's not doing their job, or whatever. Normally, there needs to be a driver, uh, I think, uh, that sets the pace. And and you know what is low growth? That's uh, uh, if we if we pull that apart yeah, a little bit. Point. So. High growth could be bigger profits this year than last year, or high growth could be uh, we want to be twice as big as we are in five years' time, and there's going to be a little bit of stuff to happen in between that. So if you're talking about low growth being uh, low uh, cash growth or low profits, as well as low expansion of the business, then that shouldn't be. You've got the wrong team. What do you look for in a CEO then? So. That's a good question, uh, and I've not always done that quite as well as what I should have. First up, from the CEO's perspective, and I'm, I'm not quite answering you, but I will. From the CEO's perspective, the CEO should get to understand what sort of business they're wanting to join. They need to know whether it's a business that's uh, just uh, driven by uh, next year's profits, or whether it has a longer-term vision, and and they need to be able to understand what the values are in that business, what the culture is, is probably a better uh, way of saying that. So in my case, uh, for me, um, I uh, I am ortho- unorthodox, and that's probably because I never went to school much, Greg. But mm. I I don't really care all that much about formal qualifications, okay. et cetera. It's all about attitude. So, uh, of course, 
the size we are today, we can select people that are, are both. But I look for an entrepreneurial spirit. I look for absolute transparency and honesty. I don't mind if things go wrong because I've done many things that have gone wrong for me in the past, but I like to know about it and I like to hear it as it is so we can do something about it. So he or she need to have people skills. They need to be entrepreneurial. They need to be smart at what they do. And uh, I I look for values such as, uh, you know, uh, people can sometimes spend an endless amount of money on stuff that they shouldn't. Uh, So I always say, spend the money like it's your own. Uh, would you would you do this? Would you would you hire this very expensive consultant, or would you uh, find another way to do it? So I've given you a lot of answers, but probably a, a broad range. First and foremost, will they fit the hostile culture? And uh, and that one word probably describes all the things that I've talked about. How much difference in business in the way business is done between US and Australia? Yeah. So if I talk, I give you a macro answer. That is, in the United States, we have been tempted with various grants to both come to the state of Alabama or to the city of Mobile or by Navy to set up to do something. So we've achieved a lot of grants. Now, they're quite good at making sure they're getting value for money. So, you know, there are normal conditions attached if you increase your growth of your workforce by X or whatever. but the example I gave you just a little while ago about receiving 50 million US from the US Navy yep. to convert our yard, I've never heard of anything like that in Australia. And uh, so so they know that they need capacity in our yard. They know they've got more steel ships to build. They know we're unlikely to do it unless we get some help from them. They're making sure that we're, we match them dollar for dollar. But that's a good example of the difference between the US. When when I first traveled around the U.S. deciding where to set up uh, and, and one, of the, uh, one of the places I visited was Mobile, Alabama, the first thing I got was a call from the governor of Alabama uh, to say, John, you know, we really want you here. And, and, uh, and the next I got a delegation headed by the city of Mobile with the yeah. mayor and two or three of his people trying to encourage me to get there. So they, they're all commercial people and they're not just uh, they're not just figurehead type people they're people that want business for their state or their city i've not seen any sign of that in australia you reckon australia is open for business then yes it's open for business for people that want to set themselves up for business but i don't think government does all that much to uh, to encourage people to set up business uh, so we've seen look i'm a I'm a person who believes in free market, so I don't expect to get any handouts. If I was uh, bidding for uh, OPVs or whatever, and my price wasn't going to match the next guy, but I was hanging my hat on the fact that I was Australian, that wouldn't be right. The, the taxpayer, you wouldn't want that no. to happen. You want people to be be responsible. By the same token, I think the Australian government could do more, and and, and I think people should be more focused on on uh, trying to win business for Australia. Now, in the last few days, I had some lunch with a group of people with John Howard, uh, and and he was he was very good in in a lot of ways for business. But and I'm not making a political statement because I, I wander all over the place. But you know, I said to him one day, I I said, Prime Minister, 
you've got posts, you've got embassies around the world, you've got uh, defense attaches that go around these places around the world. Um, but if the Brits uh, have that, they make sure that the defense attache is aware of what that country needs by way of defense equipment. They might be able to flog out of the UK. We didn't have that. Mm. So I said, between your defense minister and your foreign minister, you own the embassy and you own the defense attaches. Make these guys or girls be really aware what's happening in Australia, what's available in Australia. Let them be charged with identifying opportunities in the countries they're going to. Uh, and, and would they then bring that to the attention of, of Australian industry so we can go out and knock on their door? So before Howard went, uh, I still have his letter here somewhere. He says, John, I fixed that, and, and I, I've, I've set so much money aside so that we can get that. I, I don't think at that time we quite got there, but it's much better now, Greg. Um, we're really uh, – and, and frankly, I think we've got to give uh, Chris, uh, Chris Pine some credit for that. I think he worked hard at trying to achieve that. So I think we need to be unashamedly if, – if foreign affairs are aware that – the defence chiefs coming to Australia, yep. they've got to unashamedly try and sell him something, yeah. right? Put industry together with him or her. I keep using the gender uh, term, yep. but ignore that. But, but you know, we've got to – they should be in the business for selling. If Australian-built patrol boats or warships go to a foreign port, they've got to bring the builder into that port and they've got to invite the chief of Navy or Army or whatever on board and say, hey – Meet the builder. He, this is we're here to show this thing. So I think that more could be done, but they're certainly on the right track at the moment, Greg. Okay, China. <laughs> uh, you, you're you're a man in defence. You know the markets. What do we do? And what do you do? So don't forget, uh, I've our business success in the first instance yes. was built on the orders out of China. So have. A long history there of commercial ferries. But right now, there would be, uh, well, uh, that would have built up to 50-odd ships, I would think, in China with uh, with an hostel banner on it. Um, maybe a few have been retired, but many of them are still there. So that was the China then. The China today, though, is more complex. Now, whether I don't want to get into a political debate yeah. as to who's most at fault in, in that breakdown of relationship, but there is a breakdown of relationship, which we're seeing through um, you know, trade issues and so forth. Uh, we're seeing a, a military chasm growing uh, between uh, Australia and its allies, uh, or, or if you like, America and its allies, more correctly, and China. Uh, so... We still have a joint venture in China, building commercial ferries. But uh, frankly, I'm not planning uh, that for a long-term future now, um, Greg. And, and if I was making that decision today, I, I wouldn't make that decision today. It's probably a better way of saying it. Is that right? You really wouldn't? No, I think I think we need to see where when this will stabilise. I, I I think, as I've said, with this this growing trade war that's happening. Uh, and bickering around sort of the military-type issues in the China Sea, I, I think um, we just need to stand back for a little while and see how it all develops. So how do you see the uh, the economy of the world, John, for the next 12 months? You know, I'm a simple shipbuilder. <laughs> I, I'm not good at commenting on, on world economy. I would um, – uh, clearly, there are all sorts of unknowns, Greg. We We don't know – 
uh, we're still seeing other countries seriously suffering pandemics. And we don't quite know the magnitude of what that's costing them or what that's likely to cost them. Uh, so I'm afraid I can't call that one. Um, what do I see for the economy of Australia? Uh, Australian government, the present government, I think have done well at keeping the economy, internal economy going. You know, people getting job keeper or whatever doesn't make a lot of difference to Austin where our business is, is elsewhere. But but certainly for the retail sector and so forth, they've done great. Um, in Western Australia, of course, we're, we're living the dream. We've got, uh, you know, we've got a lot of iron ore. Yes. Uh, we, uh, we managed in spite of... Uh, uh, in spite of Palmer and Co, perhaps we we manages to keep the border secure, uh, and um, and and that uh, that suited our premier at the same time because it must have helped a little in the last election. Absolutely. I would have thought. Yeah. Uh, so so we're we are living the dream. We've had very little disruption. We've recently, uh, when I say in the last two or three months, we had four or five days of lockdown, but there's been very little of it. Um, and our people who work from home, there's hardly been any disruption uh, and we're in good shape. So on the world economy, I'm not qualified to be able to comment on. Australian economy, I have confidence. I think I think the uh, the current treasurer is doing a great job. And as I've said, state-wise, I think our current team are doing a good job and they've done a good job up to now. And that's probably all I'm qualified to talk about, Greg. Now, for your investment in technology. Let's talk about digital technology in general. Okay. So what has happened, of course, is that um, the ships are getting more sophisticated and, and digital is part of that. So, for instance, for quite some time now, we've got a product that is an austral built product called MarineLink, which allows us um, to monitor ships wherever they are in the world. We, we could, if I was to give you a silly example, we could, uh, we could tell you whether a vessel operating in the Mediterranean has left an engine room watertight door open if we right? wanted to. <laughs> Absolutely. So we can, we can with certain engine species uh, types, we can uh, monitor. We could say, and I'm being frivolous with the example, but it's true, um, we've got uh, two or four engines in this. Your port side uh, engine uh, number five cylinders running a bit warmer than number than, than the others or something. So, so we have that skill. We've had that for a while. Now, our uh, team, our uh, digital uh, or uh, development team are growing that. Um, and we, we have far more skills now in that whole management of a ship. We can, we can ensure that it's, it's, uh, it's operating in the most economical angle to the sea to get the most economical delivery of the ship. Wow. So also, uh, we have a new product, which I don't know that much about. It's called Lucy. Mm-hmm. And Lucy allows us to hand a ship over and the software that goes with it that will completely control all maintenance of that ship or, if you like, notify the owners of the maintenance of that ship. Um, so they will know where their parts are. They will know where to obtain them. They will know when this needs to be serviced and so forth. So there's a whole lot more in the efficiency of operation of ships uh, that uh, that is now through through technology. With all that technology, are you going to find uh, Mr. Dirk Hartog's boat? <laughs> Hasn't that been one of your quests? <laughs> You've been reading my uh, my background, so I'm disappointed. I, the, I, I, should, I thought you would have found it by now. Well, give me time. I, I uh, 
I love maritime history. I was Dutch born, as I've explained at the start of this. I love maritime. I like scuba diving. That's my favorite hobby, hobby today. And I do it at every opportunity. I uh, sometimes get a little philanthropic with the Maritime Museum down here. And I paid for an aerial survey to be done, not for Dirk Hartog's boat, uh, incidentally. Oh, Dirk okay. Hartog was 1616. This is yes. for another missing ship called uh, the Arctic Carrick. Yes. Only, only I can say that with that guttural <laughs> voice, Greg. But, but um, that vessel, there was a dispute between the maritime archaeologist and, uh, and a private citizen as to where that ship was. And to settle that, we flew over that. The issue is still not settled, but uh, we have a number of uh, we have a number of VOC ships on the West Australian coast, as you would know, and a British ship. We have a, a ship called the Trial that uh, uh, that's been down there for a while. I, I seem to think uh, 1620s or something. I forgot, but it's off the Monte Bello. So it's my hobby, uh, and uh, and I I join the museum whenever I can to. Uh, to go and do a bit of exploring or scratch in the dirt looking for skeletons or something that that's uh, just strictly hobby. What's next for you, John? Uh, I, this this business is not quite where it needs to be. It probably never will be. Uh, well, I'm I'm uh, I'm alive, but uh, again, so so far I've had marvelous health um, and. And I'm very fortunate. That can change for all of us anytime. But uh, I certainly have a young team here. Uh, and so my interest is in making sure that a culture towards that end goal that I've already spoken about, which is uh, a culture of um, we want to be an Australian icon. So 50 years from now, I'm, I'm saying to our people right now, I'm not very interested in a five-year plan. Of course, we're interested in what we're going to do in five years, but I'd like them to think about 30 or 50 years. Where do we want to be and what should we be doing now that will that will support that uh, that vision? So I want to be on this ride for as long as I can, Greg. John, if you were looking back at that uh, young John, 15 years old, departing school, what advice would you give him now? I would probably... Uh, say um, don't don't allow anything or anyone to stand in the way of where you want to go and in my case I was wanting to be in business uh, other people select sports and want to be good at it and and other people just want to be the best scientist or whatever else but I would probably encourage a person to uh, always assume that there is a way of doing it. And it's really, I know it's a, an old cliche, but do you know, it's the how uh, and, and not whether we can or we can't do something. So um, determination, but only to do what they want to do. Not everyone wants to be in business like I am because some people find that hard. And, uh, and I, again, don't want to sound arrogant, but it's not hard. Um, I've never found anything hard about what I do. I've just uh, just followed my nose, quite frankly, and uh, and it, it's not complicated if you if you don't allow it to become complicated in your head. So I would say to someone, think without barriers and and go for your goals. On that, John, thank you very much for making the time to join us today. It's been a real pleasure. It was fun. Thank you, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations.